afternoon, universe, and welcome to another Cross Defense, your weekly dose of worldview demolition, breaking down the stronghold, bad opinions, and false notions of the enemy, and setting up shop with the mighty fortress of our Lord's Word. I'm your host, Pastor Jonathan Fisk, and together we are on a journey studying Christian dogmatics, because we are devoted to this belief that when God speaks, he does so in order that we would speak his word back to him, that his holy scriptures, which we, he has given us, are not only inspired and inerrant, but understandable in such a way that we can confess them. We can same say them. We can speak them again. St. Paul exhorts all Christians to hunger for the truth. He says, watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them, for the time is coming when people will not put up with sound doctrine, but instead will turn aside to suit their own desires gathering around them a great number of teachers to teach what their itching ears want to hear. But you, Christian, must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught. In order to help us do this today, I have with me guest Pastor Samuel Bobby, Saint of St. Paul's Lutheran Church in Aberdeen, South Dakota, as well as his brother, literally, Pastor Jacob Bobby of First Trinity Lutheran Church in Bloomfield, Nebraska. Uh, Bobby and... Bobby, that, that couldn't have been, uh, that must have been fun in high school, I, I got to imagine. Welcome, gentlemen. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you, Jonathan. By way of review, we're going to pick up in Dr. Pieper's Volume 1, around page 34, Section 6. We're starting a new section today, Christianity, the Absolute Religion. But just, just to kind of let you know where we've come from, Dr. Pieper has started off by realizing that in our day and age, you can't just come and say, well, the Bible says so. You actually have to defend the Bible. And so he, he begins... The idea that we can know what God thinks by talking about how we know that and, and in no uncertain terms, not backing down from the idea that we do accept the Bible as inspired and without error because it is from the hands of the apostles whom our Lord Jesus himself commissioned and sent with the Spirit to do this. See, so he begins off by saying this is our position. And then he goes on to try to demonstrate how once you move away from this position, you end up in the, the general religions of the world, which really, though they seem manifold, there, there appear to be so many, really there's only two. There's all the other religions and then there's Christianity. There's all the religions that teach works, which they all do. And then there's this one religion, Christianity, which teaches grace on the basis of this vicarious atonement, which Jesus accomplished for us on the cross. But then he also recognizes that within Christianity, you have some divisions. And he goes on to show how all of those divisions also arise from rejecting the vicarious atonement, which inevitably gets connected to rejecting grace alone, which inevitably gets connected to rejecting scripture alone. And then more, most recently, then, he's affirmed, though, that Christianity is and remains the one absolute religion, that it is entirely true. And frankly, you can't, uh, you have, it doesn't do you any good to just kind of say, well, I'm a Christian, but, or I, I was raised a Christian, but I like a lot of other religions, too. If you do that, that means you're outside of Christianity. You, you've actually rejected the, the very thing you claim to be, to be holding to. And I guess that's actually where we're now moving into, this, this absoluteness of Christianity. So, gentlemen, I'm going to pick us up right there at page 34, underneath Christianity, the absolute religion, where Dr. Pieper says, the Christian religion is the, quote, absolute, that is to say, the absolutely perfect religion. It is not in need of any supplementation or improvement. 
and it cannot be developed to a higher degree of perfection. It is unsurpassable. There's kind of two levels he's working on there. One, just kind of a reestablishment of this idea that Christianity is entirely true, but also in the winds of his age particularly, and you can still hear these today, people were saying things like, well, Christianity was true in the past, but now it's moving toward a better truth. Or as I saw it once on a on a billboard somewhere, don't put a period where God put a comma, implying <laughs> that God is still speaking, right? Thoughts about that, yeah. gentlemen? Well, yeah, I think, you know, that spirit is still very much alive today. Uh, that example that you quote there is, is a good one. But I think there's a very strong notion of progressivism. I know when we think of progressivism, we typically think of politics, and there's an application over there. But I want to stay out of that. But the whole notion that, you know, here in the future, we're just getting better every day and in every way. But that idea of progressivism really does speak against how scripture speaks in the sufficiency, or as Peter is talking about, the absoluteness of what God has accomplished for us through Christ's death and resurrection. But that is a very strong current, uh, uh, and I think it's very much alive. But yeah, it, 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 doesn't, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. Yeah, and it's it's... We see it in we see it in theology, but we see it in other places. Politics, another one. But uh, I think science, science and technology is another one. Every day in every way, we're getting better and better. We know more now than we ever did, and and somehow that gets brought over into to Christianity as well. We know more about Jesus, the historical Jesus, and we know more about archaeology, or we know more about this or that, or. Or um, and it and it carries over and and so what was blowing in the wind uh, at Peepers when he was writing I still see it now probably even more pronounced. I think but, bringing up evolution and creation is a really good point there in that people say things like well science now has shown us this and so we have to reinterpret the Bible to fit with what we now know to be true. Well, and I think the the real difficulty here, or I should say danger, is that notion of progress is that you're moving toward something, right? And if you're moving towards a, something that's this goal that you're supposed to be working towards, that means you don't have it now. So when you carry that progressive mindset with you into Christianity, into your faith— all of a sudden, the very certainty that we're supposed to have through the means of the grace, the spirit working through the word and sacrament, that all of a sudden evaporates. And all of a sudden, you're looking towards what you don't have, you know, towards the future. And, and I think that's just inherent within the concept. That strikes us right back at the core then, because then it effectively it is going to whittle away at the vicarious atonement. Jesus' accomplishment on the cross and say, yes, yes, that did something, but we're, we're still waiting for, for more. Yeah, it, it, it's, it can't be just Jesus dead on the cross. It's got to be something something more, something do it. I, I don't know. I mean, this, this has part, partial application, but I, but I think of academi, academ, academicians, you know, looking for something new to write about and spin out some new theory of, of what Jesus' uh, death means or what Christianity means and things like that. And, and don't get me wrong, I mean— Acquisitions serve the church in terms of of uh, uh, doing stuff like Peeper did, you know, and 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 reestablishing doctrine and and getting us to uh, maybe reevaluate uh, areas where we've gone off course and rediscover things that we've somewhat lost. But this this need to continually drive for the new in a different way, and and Jesus dead on a cross just isn't enough, and uh, that's that's a very it's very um, dangerous sort of 
presupposition to have going into to doing theology and, and Christian faith. The, the history of new ideas in the church is the history of heresies. You know, they, they come along, <laughs> right? And they think, oh, we, we found this new thing, and it turns out that it's against Scripture. And then the church has to spend time. If there is any, if we can call it supplementation, it's not discovering something new. It's discovering how the new thing is un, under. Uh, undercutting what was old and valuable. So you don't really have the church needing a creed to establish that Christ is of one substance with the Father until you have false teaching come along and teach this new thing that he's that he's just an elevated creature. So there is this, if I can call it, a progressive recognition of what we have, but it's all what we already have. Nothing has changed. Well, you know, in that—oh, sh- go ahead. Uh, in part, that should take somebody like Peeper in the eyes of maybe the people who will listen to this show, but I wish it was for the church in general to kind of see the value of what he does when he, you know, goes through all of these doctrines, you know, so you got three volumes and an index as big as almost two volumes of Peeper going on here. But that should make a person sit there and go, this has to be done because of all the unscriptural things that are talked about with respect to who Jesus is. So some people lament the fact that, you know, there's this time spent on doctrine and this focus on doctrine as though this doctrine did not stand as a, as a bulwark work over and against uh, people speaking about Jesus incorrectly, i.e. heresy, robbing the gospel of its power. People use the word doctrine as if it's something other than what scripture says. And I, I've just started using the word truth more often now, because that's really mm. what it means. Mm. It's just it's just truth. And, and, and so when you're saying, well, a doctrine divides us, well, sure, you're right. Truth can divide us because there's people <laughs> that are liars, right? And they don't like the truth. Yep. They want to hide in the darkness. Uh, but, but when we say we're going to worry about doctrine, oh, we're worrying about is abiding in Jesus' words. Yeah, and to to lose doctrine and and to lose the sharpness of doctrine and function and the function that it has in the church is to lose the proclamation of the gospel. I mean, Peeper gets into this beautifully talking because I think for him the vicarious satisfaction not only includes the doctrine of Jesus of what Jesus' death means, it also includes the proclamation of the gospel and the doing of forgiveness to folks as well. And you can't have, you lose one, you lose the doctrine, you lose the proclamation. It's the same way that if you, if you mess up a doctrine in terms of election and go along with John Calvin, you're going to lose the gospel because you're not going to be able to proclaim the bold universal gospel of forgiveness of sins to folks because, you know, some people are in, some people are aren't. So. That's right. It's like, it's like a, a perfectly uh, developed statue, and you can chip away at pieces of it. You can chip away at the arm or the leg a little bit, but eventually you, you're losing the form. You're losing the shape of the actual thing, and it ceases to be what it is. And in this case, like you said, certainty and comfort in who Jesus is and what he's done. And that's what he means when he calls this absolute or insurpassable. He means that uh, the, the fullness of that has been revealed in these last times. In many ways, various ways of old, he spoke to his people by the prophets, but in the last times he's spoken to us by his son, and that is a complete revelation. And, and so in some ways what he's saying here is that revelation is done. But he doesn't want us to, to confuse the completion of the revelation being given with a, a statement that, therefore, it all makes sense. So the next paragraph is going to say, well, you know, it doesn't mean we, we understand all of it. Uh, by that, he says, we do not mean that it presents a logically complete whole in which there are no gaps for the human mind. 
The Apostle Paul does not claim this sort of perfection for the Christian religion. On the contrary, he calls the religious knowledge of the Christian, including his own, a fragmentary one. Uh, but I think, and I think it's actually, he makes the case in that same section that they're waiting for the completion of Scripture itself to be done, and 1 Corinthians being one of the earliest letters of the New Testament that's written, but that when it's when it's done, we may in a fragmentary way understand it, but it is complete in and of itself. There may be more revelation in the life of the world to come, but we're not to expect anything new now. What are you guys' thoughts about that? Well, I just like that he sets out what he knows the objection's going to be. Because he recognizes that what drives all of this theology that undermines the claims of Christianity as an absolute religion hinges upon this notion that it has to be logically complete. Like, this has to make sense to me, or else why would I adhere to it, which of course is in one sense absurd because even a superficial reading of scripture establishes that the whole problem with fallen mankind is that that's exactly what we try to do is fit God into our story. Yeah, I, I appreciate what he said, this, this thing, this uh, paragraph, because I think he avoids what, what we would probably call you know bold prideful modernism that tries to turn christian theology and into a into a complete system with no no uh, everything explained and uh really you see that in rationalism and and i think that he steps back and says listen this doesn't mean that we're going to understand everything you know and and he goes to to first corinthians and points to them as uh, Paul's words to them as being sort of a, a a place to look to know that you know we're still sinners and the church on earth is is not um, always going to have it all figured out at the same time. That doesn't mean that doesn't mean that we can't know what Scripture means or things like that. He doesn't go down that rabbit hole. I think he does a good job of of kind of go towing the line between what we would call maybe modernism and the rabbit hole of postmodernism. I think it's really valuable how he tells us, you know, that there are in Christianity revealed gaps for the human mind and that that language itself, that there are yeah. gaps for the human mind. There's a place in Christianity where I still don't get, not where I still, where I just don't get to be God. I don't get to be yep. omniscient yep. now, right? There's a place where my brain has to lose. And this is something that you mentioned modernism. The modern man has a lot of trouble with that. I remember a similar kind of church to the one that said, don't put a, a, a period where God has put a comma, had a, had a phrase that said something along the lines of, uh, where you don't have to check your brain at the door, as if somehow truth meant you never think anymore because you get to a point where you have to say, I don't know. But just because we say there's an I don't know, say on how the Lord's Supper is the Lord's Supper, doesn't mean that there's no intellect involved. And yet it does mean that there's a place where God is God and I am not. Well, and I think this is because what he's saying here is is so good in terms of where he's moving next, which is to God's word, because really this tension between needing a logically complete system and what God's word says is the difference between God's word and our word. And what we want to do is take God's word and reduce it to our word because then it becomes like a specimen. It becomes like information. And then we can work on it the way that we want, but it simply is not. It's God's 
word, which means not only is it inspired by the Holy Spirit to reveal to us the gospel, uh, it also means uh, that you do not get to do with it whatever you want, and it's speaking to you. And I think that tension uh, is 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 uh, right at the heart of this. Yeah, he he is he is intent upon having a systematic, based in scripture and in understanding scripture as an active force in shaping us. And I think he he good, does well in capturing kind of Luther's understanding of the power of the word. And Bob Kolb has, Kolb has a new book out. I don't know what it's called, something about the power of the word that that um, lays out that sort of thing where the word of God is not a specimen that we can just take apart and analyze and and break down. I think during Peeper's time, it'd be called the critical method. Um, but it is this active force that engages us and in doing so shapes us to be able to think and confess as the church has always confessed about who Jesus is and what his life, death, and resurrection means. I want to tangent us for just a moment on, on that thought because the idea that God's word is living and active is an idea that comes straight from scripture. And yet it, it is one which I would say dif, uh, differentiates the Lutheran confession or the Lutheran understanding or Lutheran spirituality from the rest of American Protestantism and frankly from, from Rome and from the East. And that we don't believe uh, this word is under us. We believe this word is over us in a divine way. Uh, that when, when the Bible says the word became flesh and dwelt among us, this wasn't just flowery, pretty talk, or, or that when the Bible says, God said, let there be light and there was light, that God's word is is so different from our word that it literally does what it says. We wish our words would do what they say. His word actually does that. And so we view the scriptures as that in our lives. And so we come at it very much under them, as opposed to, again, I would say most other interpreters of scripture come in over it. And even the, the difference there between the word interpretation and to understand, you can hear the difference, right? I interpret something that puts me above the text mm -hmm. if i understand it now i'm below it right <laughs> isn't that cool that, i hadn't thought about that you're right understand because it's right there you're standing underneath it yeah that's a good point but you know if it because of that understanding you are going to have the gaps of course you're going to have the gaps in fact if you didn't have the gaps it would kind of make you wonder because then it's you know where's the divineness uh if it's everything that i can do and control i mean the fact that we want to have a system that fits exactly to our interpretation uh just shows that we want to have lordship over it i mean so that you would almost disqualify it from being a text worth examining in the first place yeah and it gets it gets back to one that we are human beings and so the, the the gaps, how he words it, the 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 gaps for uh, our minds, but the fact that the scriptures are you know fully fully divine and fully human in the sense, and they so they come to us written by the hand of, of Paul or or one of his scribes, and and it's written uh, for us to consume as human beings uh, who are not uh, computers, who are not you know uh, uh, just beings that understand closed systems, you know, we, it comes to us in a way that's very human and that doesn't negate the fact that it's infallible inspired word of God. It just shows that God meets us where we're at in the scriptures and, 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 but I know folks take that and they, they run with that into the realm of, well, then we couldn't possibly, because I don't know what it could mean 
uh, the scriptures cannot be interpreted to mean anything absolute. Or they hear us they hear us saying that the scripture and the Christian religion is absolute, and they say, therefore, we're saying we know everything, which is is not true. Or they think, therefore, we're saying that makes us morally perfect. So along this direction, Pieper is is responding in his in his text to arguments he expects to have happen. And, and the next one is that one I just said, that we're somehow therefore claiming that we have moral superiority in ourselves. He says, again, Christianity must not be called the absolute religion insofar as it teaches the most perfect morality. To be sure, the Christian religion teaches the best, the perfect system of eth- ethics. The Christian morality cannot be surpassed for it centers in the command, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But this does not constitute the Christian religion. The love of God and of the neighbor is the daughter of faith. And so he's pointing at what he's, what he's been getting at all along as well, that we're not claiming that we're absolute because we somehow have kept the law. What we're saying is that someone has kept the law in our place absolutely. And that is what defines and puts this religion over and above all the others of the world. Yeah, this this argument that he's anticipating, I think, is, is you know, so you have a group of people who he anticipates are going to look at the logical aspect of it. But this is the, I think, the portion of folks who are going to respond with that self-justification through works, just like you said. I mean, if Christianity is is going to be valid or if it's going to be an absolute, uh, absolute religion, it has to give me this kind of perfect morality so I can look and say, look, I'm a good person. Um, I am justified uh, as opposed to other people. But like he says, that does not constitute the Christian religion. In fact, it's our inability to keep the law uh, and the, our desire to, to be God that requires Christ to die. So the morality is there, obviously. I mean, the, the, all, the, the, all the laws still apply. Um, but like he says, I love the way he put that. The love of God and the neighbor is the daughter of faith. Yeah, and and that a Christian uh, or a pastor um, doesn't live a perfect life shouldn't disqualify what they are saying uh, as as regards to its truth or falsehood. Because I think people do do bring that up. Well, if you're Christian, then you must uh, live a perfect life, uh, or if you're a pastor, you must live a perfect life. And there, and if you don't, therefore, that disqualifies you from talking about what what. Um, what is right and what is wrong. And I think people do this to, you know, judge not lest you be judged. Well, how pastor, how could I say anything's right or wrong? Cause I'm a sinner myself. Well, it doesn't disqualify you from, from having a, uh, a belief as to what is true based upon God's word. It's a and, classic, and again, it, it's a classic oh, logical ahead. fallacy called an ad hominem attack, which is to say, because you're, you're not capable of one thing, therefore you're not capable of anything. And I'll just to be crass, you know, um, uh, because Trump wants to build a wall, therefore he can't even possibly like good pizza. You know, you just, I'm being really, you know, uh, ridiculous in the example, but, you know, taking things that really don't apply to each other, but we do those kinds of things. Uh, for example, because you happen to be a Democrat, because you happen to be a Republican, therefore you're not this and you're not that. And we, it's painting with a broad brush. People do that with Christianity. They point at Christians and their their moral choices or lack of them, and they try to dismiss Christianity entirely with that. I think it's interesting as well that in the text that he uses from Matthew chapter 22, 37 to 40, quoting Jesus on the perfect law, 
that it is the perfect law, the whole law, how we are supposed to be as Christians is summed up in you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. And the second commandment, the greatest commandment is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus is saying that in response to the Pharisees testing him in the temple during the week of Holy Week. These are the people who are actually really good at being good people, and they're trying to trip him up on matters of the law. And so he answers the question. He's got, yeah, I got no problem with the law, but how does he really silence them? Where does it all end? It's in what he says next. So they're gathered together. He asks them, well, then who is the Christ? Tell me about this, right? Is he David's son or David's Lord? And he gets into the whole thing about how he's both, which is a miracle in itself. But but Christ himself is like, I'm not here to talk about how to make you a better person. I'm here to be the person that you need me to be. Totally a different way of looking at religion in general. It's interesting, too, because when he kind of poses that question back to them about what do you think about the Christ, whose son is he? It's like he's <laughs> he's going back to those places where because not only do you have the morality, but it's almost like he's bringing back in. You don't even have the logical understanding that you think. I mean, your expertise in terms of morality and knowledge uh, of the scriptures. I'm going to show you up on both of these, because not only this is not about the morality, uh, you can't even explain this simple passage. Uh, it's it's a, it's a really a wonderful uh, a way that he just stops them in his tra- their, their tracks with that question. Yeah, and, and as he continues on, I mean, he 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 talks to the crowd and the disciples, you know, saying they should respect the Pharisees, the scribes and Pharisees, but uh, they are the ones who tie heavy burdens on people. And so I think it's a it's a good reminder uh, pastorally, and, and of course reading Peeper does this as well to refocus our job on our our focus on what our job is in terms of pastors and and there's always that inclination to want to heap on because you want folks that look like Christians <laughs> in your pews and in your churches but uh, in the end it continually comes back to the preaching of of law and gospel and Jesus Christ him crucified for us and if you get away from that you're 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 heaping burden on folk. Yeah, there's always the attempt to try to make ourselves look better than we are and to use the law to do that, to add to the law to do that, or to think that this next thing, whatever this next new thing is, that's going to be what makes Christianity really work, rather than recognizing that Christianity has worked since the moment that Jesus said it is finished. Talking with Pastor Samuel Bobby and Pastor Jacob Bobby, both pastors up in the north, South Dakota, Nebraska, talking about Peeper's Dogmatics here on Cross Defense. We'll be back in just a moment. Concordia University, Wisconsin, and Mequon overlooks a half mile of beautiful Lake Michigan shoreline. CUW campus is located 15 miles north of Milwaukee, with over 70 undergraduate majors, 28 graduate degree programs, and doctorate programs in pharmacy, physical therapy, occupational therapy, and nursing practice. CUW offers online learning and accelerated learning at one of nine Wisconsin centers and one in St. Louis. Traditional or accelerated education, CUW has the program for you. CUW.edu. What are all the things you witness online in a day? Cats playing piano, selfies on your feed, your friend's picture being turned into a nasty meme that's been shared 50 times, 51, 52. When someone's being bullied online, it's hard to know what to do. Now you can speak up with the witness emoji. It looks like an eye in a speech bubble, and it's in the symbol section near the clocks in your phone. You'll let the world know it isn't cool, and you'll let your friend know you care. Learn more at eyewitnessbullying.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council. 
Worldwide KFUO is faithful to the Holy Scriptures. Our talk programs, music programs, and worship services focus on the message of salvation through Christ. Generations of families have confidence in KFUO to proclaim a clear, unwavering message of Christ crucified for sins. Faithful, scriptural, Lutheran. We are Worldwide KFUO, the messenger of good news. Clemson head coach Dabo Sweeney is known for his integration of faith and football. So it was no surprise in 2015 when Sweeney celebrated a playoff bid with a pep talk to 30,000 fans in Memorial Stadium. From the Bible in Galatians 6, 9, let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Sweeney not only displays Bible verses in his office, but refers to the Bible often in team meetings. In fact, most Clemson players can recite their coach's favorite verse from 1 Corinthians 9, 24 and 25. In a race, everyone runs, but only one person gets the prize. So run to win. All athletes are disciplined in their training. They do it to win a prize that will fade away, but we do it for an eternal prize. Brought to you by Museum of the Bible. Right now, you can double the impact of your giving to the Lutheran Heritage Foundation. They got their dollar-for-dollar match. It's back. A fantastic opportunity to help new Christians, new Lutherans in places like Slovakia, Mongolia, and Japan have at their fingertips fantastic biblical resources like the Small Catechism, a children's garden of Bible stories, and Good News Magazine. Did you know that the cost to translate and print one small catechism in a foreign language is only $5? Now imagine just how far that $5 goes as a tool put into the hands of a faithful pastor to help his people learn the language of the Bible, the importance of confessing the same faith once for all delivered to the saints, and of course that proper distinction between law and gospel, that the gospel is that Jesus wants you to be his own and live under him in his kingdom, which is of course why he shed his precious blood for you. The Lutheran Heritage Foundation is working in over 105 languages with over 840 titles published in 95 of those languages. I'm not kidding when I say they're doing phenomenal work all around the globe, and they are certainly worth contacting and supporting with your mission giving. You can learn more about the Lutheran Heritage Foundation at lhfmissions.org. That's lhfmissions.org. Come on, just go ahead right now. Head over, give them five bucks. That'll get two catechisms translated and printed. Totally worth your time. Welcome back to Cross Defense on World Bo. I'm your host, Pastor Jonathan Fisk, talking with the Bobby Brothers. Again, that just had to be fun in high school. Uh, about Dr. Pieper and his uh, definition of absolute religion. The idea that Christianity is insurpassable because it's finished, because Jesus did it on the cross. That nothing is greater than this. And, and by this, we don't mean that we understand everything. And by this, we don't mean that we've become perfect morally. By this, we mean that God's love is perfect in all ways and does understand and has overcome everything. And this is where he goes in the next sentence in the paragraph. He says, first he says that the, the, the law does not constitute Christian religion. But even when we talk about the law being the love that God has told us about, love for himself, love for his neighbor, 
We love because we know that, and then immediately he's going to quote scripture. God loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Getting to that atonement language. That's from 1 John chapter 4. He actually lists verses 9 through 21 there. So I'm going to go ahead and read all of those here. Here's how it goes. John says, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is so, also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Now, I mean, we could probably talk for an hour just on that passage and uh, the way in which St. John writes in a bit of a circular pattern, but you do see he keeps coming back to this idea that whatever love we do have, and we, we should and must and will, I would even say it's a promise, whatever love we do have ultimately doesn't come from the command that we ought to love, but from the fact that God has demonstrated his love for us, his enemies, buying us back by that propitiation, that satisfaction of the wrath of God in Christ on the cross. Yeah, that's the reoccurring theme here over and over again is that, yeah, just like you said, the love that we have for the neighbor or as Peeper is trying to show here, this idea that absolute religion is meant to be some sort of, I don't know, inviolable uh, morality. Uh, no, you're missing the whole point because you cannot possibly have love without God's love revealed in Christ. I don't think people quite get that. I mean, St. John puts it wonderfully here as he keeps connecting it back and back and back, but the love that people show to one another outside of Christ always has limits. In fact, oftentimes it's not even love at all. It's based out of exactly what he says in verse 18, which is fear, which isn't love at all. It's just using the other person to try to, to somehow uh, soothe your own fears. But that, that perfect love comes from Christ. And it's that love that allows us to love other people. So, you know, even talking about love in a really meaningful kind of deep way that people try to capture in really uh, cheesy pop songs and in bad novels and, and movies... Outside of Christ, it becomes meaningless because there are always limits and boundaries to that uh, where, you know what, this is where my love ends. You screw this up, this is where my love ends. You do this, this is where my love ends. But that's where Christ's love starts, for goodness sake. Yeah, and, and uh, you see you see people, even even Christians, that, that, that understand the, the law— and what is what is uh, what we're called to do in Christ? Lots of times they put the cart before the horse, as as Peter talks about here, and make Christianity out to be all about the ethics of it. 
And Peeper does a nice job saying, yes, there are ethics, there is morality, but always as the daughter of faith, always as the fruits of the good tree. A good tree bears good fruit. The good tree must be made good first before it can bear good fruit. That's exactly what he's saying here, and that happens through faith in Jesus Christ and his vicarious satisfaction. And and he nails it beautifully. I once heard somebody describe the love of the world, the love that is built into mankind as organized selfishness. But, you know, <laughs> we recognize that we can't really get the best of life by ourselves. That that is kind of a hellish thing to imagine being totally alone. And yet, being selfish as we are, we also know that we got to get something out of it. So, but to do that, we got to give a little. So we set up these rules, and you can even have a very successful marriage in an organized selfishness, provided that Absolutely. you are both scratching each other's back, right? But the love which John is talking about here is not. I scratch your back, you scratch mine. It is literally, you're a punk, but I'm going to raise you from the dead and give you a new life anyway. <laughs> One of the, I have a, a rant that I use quite often with my confirmation kids. And if any of them are listening to this or will be listening to it, they're probably rolling their eyes at this point. But I, I'm convinced that the only model, and maybe this goes back beyond just our cultural context now, but certainly in our cultural context, the only model for relationships that is presented is an exploitive one. Like you're saying, I like that idea of organized selfishness because it is, it's all about evaluating the people around you based on what they can do for you because you know that you can't achieve whatever that vision of perfection you have in your mind that you think is going to deliver you that fulfillment, peace, all those things that only Christ can give uh, through his forgiveness, um, his death and resurrection that you think are, are going to that they're going to give you. And so that exploitive mindset is just touted and broadcast from virtually every media outlet. And so very rarely, very, very rarely do I not have a student or a young couple that comes in where the monumental struggle, whether it's premarital or just kind of understanding the people around them, is that you're, they're not there so that you can use them. All right. That's in, in the, the, the where you go to kind of figure that out is look at Christ. Look how Christ's love functions. It does not function any way over here. And it is kind of uh, a little bit, uh, I don't know, disconcerting because you do see people in marriages, like you said, where, yeah, I mean, yeah, they do all right, but not when you compare it to the love of Christ. Then hey. all of a sudden, all you have is just like you said, organized selfishness. And speaking of speaking of selfishness and how to make it work better, you know how to get your confirmands to listen to the, this podcast. You know How's how that? assign it to them as homework. Tell them they won't yeah, get, they won't get confirmed unless they and their parents sit down and listen to this particular episode just to hear the the beautiful, <laughs> the amazing Samuel Bobby. Hey Jacob, you got a follow up to your brother's comments? I uh, no, I've I have. Uh... I have used that distinction before, thanks to uh, hearing it from my brother, and it captures well um, the distinction between an exploitive versus a sacrificial uh, servant yeah. relationship. And uh, you, uh, you're absolutely right. You only see that displayed in its fullness in Jesus Christ. Otherwise, it's back to use. You're you're gonna end up using folks for your own ends in some way, shape, or form you know, wrapped up in whatever sort of mythology of, of, of giving of yourself and things like that. But even in giving of yourself, you're using it to make yourself feel good for giving of yourself or something like that. Unless it is grounded in Jesus Christ, you will not be in, you will not be in the position to, to understand 
what your relationship is to the other as someone who has been given new life in Jesus Christ. Not to go too off, too far off into a tangent here, but that, that really brings up a, an important point about what we normally call sanctification or the new obedience and why the law can't ultimately achieve it. Because the law has to be done for a selfish motivation. It comes along and it says, do this or else. And and so, I mean, if the worst way to get my wife to love me more is to say, you better love me more. You got you to gotta love me more. It, it just doesn't work. And yet the miracle of Christian regeneration is that before you even know it has happened, the mercy that has been poured out on you in Jesus, believed. I mean, obviously, this is through faith. So this doesn't happen without faith. It has to be believed. You don't do that. God does that to you. But once you start believing, that mercy that's poured out on you, before you even know it, is coming out of you upon somebody else who needs it. And it doesn't stop you from sinning, but it does dampen the effect of your sin on the world around you. It does make you willing to sacrifice yourself, to turn the other cheek, to, to not put your face first. And, and you, the moment you look at it and be like, wow, I did a good job with that. Now, you know, you ruin the reward. The moment you start measuring that sanctification, you've gotten in the way of it, as opposed to, as you said, starting at the cross, trusting in the cross, it just happens. Sanctification happens. Now, uh, what you said there reminds me, so you were out and you did our Reformation service and taught a Bible study on Romans, uh, and especially on chapter five. I got a lot of comments because you really drew out well that notion from Romans 5, 8, that God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, I, you know, and a person hears that line, I think, uh, from St. Paul, and we kind of I don't know, just set it aside kind of nonchalantly. But I, it was very potent. Got a lot of comments on that, that this this is the love of Christ, that he knew who you were. Like, mm-hmm. oh, you know, I, I sinned. Like, yeah, <laughs> Jesus knew that <laughs> beforehand. And he still forgives you. So what kind of love is that? What wondrous love is this, right? Oh, my soul, oh, my soul. Yeah. While we were, while we were enemies, right? I mean, in, in yeah. replacing that word sinner there, which that even that word I think we use kind of, nonchalantly. What does that mean? That means, oh, I'm kind of not a good person all the time. No, 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 no. You're a rank enemy of God, a despiser of the holy. You still are in your flesh. God has known that. And the cross is where he pierces his wrath against that, which is rightful, uh, not into you, but into Jesus for you. I mean, what a, what a wondrous love is just an understatement. I mean, that's what that song is about really is I can't express this. Yeah. 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 But that, uh, yeah, that, but that's where the sanctification conversation has to go. But obviously what Peeper's showing here is that a lot of people want to do just the exact opposite of that. They want to start in that place, which like you said, um, the law is all about me. It's all about threat. You make morality the center of the religion. You're back to the same old, there's only two kinds of religions. So Paul then, yeah, there's, Oh, go ahead. Go ahead, go Jacob. Ahead. Oh no. I, uh, you know, getting back to the idea of, of, Without faith, there is no good work. <laughs> you know, uh, that's absolutely true. The, the fact that without an understanding of God's undeserved love for you through Jesus Christ, there there is no understanding of how to live sacrificially towards others. And of course, we don't always do it even though we know God's love for us. Uh, sometimes the curb of the law 
gets us to do what we want to do. But in terms of following the curb, we're following consequences. Yeah, pra- you know, when the- practically speaking, the curb is not sanctification. It's good. We need to be curbed. You need to you need to not you know run into your neighbors as they travel down the highway of life. But we can't properly <laughs> call that true holiness or even true righteousness. Those things or must be driving. spontaneous for good driving. Those things got to be spontaneous. And uh, the law doesn't doesn't keep it spontaneous. Uh, it, it just can't because that's not what it was. That's not what it was designed for. No, it couldn't possibly. It puts it's uh, it being a word uh, from God to us outside outside of outside of Christ is going to be the consequences for us, the sinner, and we're well, going to try to avoid those. And think about the phoniness. I mean, the law is always a calculation. I mean, there is an inherent just phoniness uh, to people who are trying to go the way of the law. And quite rightly, this gets pointed out by people outside the church, right? All the folks in those pews are a bunch of judgmental kind of, you know, posers kind of a thing. And I think in a lot of cases, you know, that is accurate. You know, I don't know so much in in the Lutheran churches uh, that we serve. I'm sure there's an element of that. But certainly, if you do what people are suggesting you should not do, and that's make the law the way to go, you're just going to have that because the law is always calculation. This is not an extension of your true identity. In Christ, this is who we are. And we recognize when we go away from this and break the law that that's all the more that we need Jesus. So it comes back to Jesus. But when it's the way of the law, it just comes back to us and us trying harder. I think people can smell that phoniness a mile away. St. Paul also points us to uh, Romans chapter 12, and I kind of want to look at that uh, in just a moment, but he under, undergirding this, which again, it was he arguing, uh, he's arguing about the idea that Christianity is not about morals. It is about Christ. The morals are there, but they're not the center. There's a footnote here from a guy named Nietzsche Stefan, and it's going to talk about Kant. And so I'm glad I got you here, uh, Samuel Bobby, because uh, oh, being the f- philosopher that you are, maybe you can you can pierce <laughs> the darkness of this this footnote for us. Actually, I think it's not so bad. So let me give a, a shot at it, but I love your response. So this guy, Nietzsche Stefan, says the primary defect of Kant's ethical interpretation of Christianity. Uh, Immanuel Kant was a philosopher and really one of the first ones to say that it, it kind of it doesn't matter if Christianity is historically true because it's got an ethical system that's better than everything else. The failing of that inheres. In those interpretations which hold that the Christian religion is the perfect religion for no other reason than that it is the religion of love toward God's and God and men. Now, it is true that, the, that Christianity stresses the duty of love towards God and all men as no other religion does. But mere obligations do not constitute a religion. That's so key right there. And the Christian's love is not merely to be patterned after God's love, but according to our Christian faith— the love of God is the prerequisite, that is, it comes beforehand, an enabling cause, that's the source of our love. We love because we know and realize that God, redeeming us and forgiving us our sins, first loved us. Mere obligations do not constitute a religion. What a, what a wonderful statement. Yeah, when I, I it's interesting because I kind of was thinking about that earlier and had talked to Jacob about that, that mere obligations do not constitute a religion. Saying you ought to do this does not mean a religious motive. However, he will bring down later on in another um, quotation from a, from a different guy here, it's the motives from which the ethical behavior flows. And, um, and so when you start talking about those obligations, like why, 
you start asking why are those obligations, and then you will start getting into religious implications. But he's right. The obligations alone, which is exactly what Kant is up to, does not constitute a religion. Yeah, because Kant uh, doesn't take it back to God. <laughs> he no, takes no, no. it back to the things that you would have to believe in order to be able to make sense of anything. And so it's it's a it's a rational rationalistic sort of an idea. But if you do ask the question of why of the obligations, it's going to get you back to God. And I think Kant, if he wasn't if he wasn't trying to build a system that was um, free of God, would eventually get back there. And if and of course if any one of us was asking him the questions, we'd get him back there real quick. Now, is it kind of like if I used that example earlier of, you know, me yelling at my wife for her to love me in the hopes that it would make her love me? Is it kind of like then me calling that a relationship? Right. I got a relationship with my wife. I tell her to love me. <laughs> right. Um, that we, I have a religion. Love God. Right. It, it doesn't really actually create the thing that I want. I want a relationship with my wife. She has to actually love me. And that's not going to come because I tell her to do it. It's going to become uh, really effectively in response to my loving her, uh, which is then what happens with God pouring his mercy into us, reestablishing a right relationship between us and him, one that's not sinner to angry God, but saint underneath loving father. And as a result, what happens? I, I do begin to have this new man come forth to live before God in, in righteousness and blessedness. Well, it might be helpful to listeners to know that Kant is responding to a guy by the name of David Hume. And what Hume had done is basically driven a, a very kind of fatal blow to the whole modern philosophical agenda because a lot of this was based on the ability of metaphysics and science to be able to articulate the universe. And he came up with this argument that says – all that physical, all that logical uh, uh, causation and, and material causation doesn't actually exist. And so there's this bit of this crisis. And so Kant said, David Hume woke me from my dogmatic slumber. And so he sets out to develop his whole system based on pure reason alone. So if you go back to what Pieper was talking about, about what is not an absolute religion, and he says it does not mean, you know, or absolute religion does not mean it presents a logically complete whole. That's Kant. That's exactly what Kant's trying to do. So he tries as much as possible to take Christianity down to just pure obligation. Right. And as though, like you said, yelling at my wife's not going to create a relationship, pure obligation uh, developed out of uh, out of a metaphysical grounds and no way is going to get you uh, uh, Jesus. That's for sure. With the last few minutes here, just about five minutes left, let's look lo a little more closely at that Romans 12 passage then that Paul points us to. One that I think that, yeah, personally, I think it gets abused sometimes. It gets used to make it sound as if the Christian life is all about what you're supposed to do because it does have this phrase living sacrifice in it. But in its context, too, what you are supposed to do is not just live a flighty life, fly-by-night spirituality life, nor have some sort of real high piety. It's about having your mind conformed to what God says about Jesus. And what does that mean? It makes you actually, uh, again, a sacrifice, not a glory hound, but a sacrifice, one who's going to die to your sin. Now, let me go ahead and read it, and we can maybe ch chat about it to finish up here. So chapter 12, verse 1, book of Romans. 
Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, that is, and therefore is like on the basis of everything I just said, this whole book that's a, a, a diatribe of the best sense of the word on, on justification, on the basis of your justification as an ungodly person made godly in Christ, I appeal to you by the mercies of God. Notice the emphasis there on mercy. This is something that he's going to do in you to present your bodies, that is your present reality, as a living sacrifice. That is, don't believe what you see right now is what you're really going to get. Instead, recognize that it's going to be death right now. You're going to be given over like sheep to the slaughter right now, knowing something more is coming. So now, by faith alone, you are holy and acceptable to God. This is your spiritual worship. Not that you would go out and try really hard to be a sacrifice or a servant, but they would recognize that your works are empty, right? And that no matter how much you love, you don't love enough, but God has loved you. That is your spiritual sacrifice Uh, your spiritual worship. Now, you want something to do? Do this next thing. Verse two, do not be conformed to this world, which is always teaching you that it's about you and what you got to do and climb in that ladder, but instead be transformed by the renewal of your mind, which only grace can do. An attitude of grace, an understanding of grace, or a life lived on grace has to be renewed. It's not born anew. It has to be given so that by testing, you may discern what is the will of God. Is you're going to be able to tell when false doctrine is there, says Peter's entire point. You're going to know a false teaching church because you're going to hear works rather than grace. That's where the emphasis is going to be. So by by testing, you will be able to discern the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect, which is, again, Jesus, Jesus for you. None of this undermines love, right? But, but all of it founds what real love is, whereas putting love on top ends up undermining everything, including love itself. Response to any of that text, guys, we've got about, we got three minutes left here. Uh, it's very well, very well put. I mean, that, that captures exactly what's going on here. I mean, it should bring you back to the source and the fount of that love who is Christ and, and, and not back to, you know, what you do, even though it is talking about, uh, you know, presenting your bodies as a living sacrifice. Yeah. And, and, and that you may, uh, testing testing so as to be able to discern God's will and I think that gets into what what actually constitutes good works as what also checking us as to what constitutes our motive as those who are living sacrifices through Jesus Christ so it's always going back to the sacrifice of Christ in order to understand what it looks like in order to actually live in the world as Christians and then be driven back to that sacrifice continually. And only there do we, are we able to discern what indeed is God's will for us as we live out that life. I think the reason people like this verse so much is because phrases like living sacrifice and spiritual worship are squishy. So you can kind (laughs) of make them mean what you want as opposed to say verse nine, which says, let love be genuine. You know, don't be a hypocrite. Abhor what is evil. Right. Hold fast to what is good. You know, like doctrine. Love one another out of brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. If only we would just let's quote that one a lot. Let's let's <laughs> let's try to outdo one another in showing honor. Right. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Nobody wants to hear that. Be constant in prayer. Seek to show hospitality. I mean, there you want some law. There it is, and I'm all for it. Yeah, but but uh, again, the the point of this whole thing is recognizing that the law is not what Christianity comes to preach. It comes to preach Christ and said the law is an outflow, a daughter of that faith. Amen. Amen. Only in light of Jesus Christ can you call those things good. <laughs> you know, because according to our human nature, no way. Tribulation, whatever, you know. 
service? No way. Yeah. Yep. That's uh, I don't know. It's yeah. Paul gets it. We like we like to to kind of uh, kind of tend towards those ones that they, they give it back to us, the, the law give us back control. Uh, but at the same time, Paul makes it very clear in these verses, which is why I think Peeper uses them, that come on, you can't make that claim. Paul couldn't even make the claim. Even where Paul is advocating that we do good works, it, it always comes back to Jesus, just like uh, that first verse 12.1 shows us. My guest, Pastor Jacob Bobby, pastor at First Trinity Lutheran Church in Bloomfield, Nebraska, and Pastor Samuel Bobby, St. Paul's Lutheran Church in Aberdeen, South Dakota, talking about Dr. Peeper's Volume 1 on Christianity, the Absolute Religion. Thanks for being with me today, gentlemen. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thank you. You're listening to Cross Defense on Worldwide KFUO. We are the messenger of good news, and we certainly hope you heard that good news in this last hour. Cross Defense and KFUO are listener-supported radio. That means we rely on your giving to KFUO to keep this Cross Defense on the air, coming to you via the internet and the radio. If you have not yet become an annual contributor to KFUO, day sponsor, $480 a year. We need 365 of you to keep KFUO going. Consider becoming one. Give us a call or an email and let us know that you'd like to sponsor one day of the year at KFUO and especially let them know that the reason you want to do that is because you want more cross-defense. And you know, I got to tell you, it's good to have an absolute religion. I don't know why you'd want any other kind. Why would you want a religion that is incomplete? Why would you want a religion that you couldn't trust in? What good would that do you ultimately to worship shadows and wonder at the stars and the sky and the seas and ask the gods of rain and earth and and lightning to maybe help? I'd much rather have a religion in which I can be fully confident that what has been revealed is revealed once for all, certain and true, an absolute salvation, an absolute forgiveness, a holy absolution pronounced over you in the name of father son and holy spirit it is absolutely the coolest thing you will ever hear you get some more of that next week on cross defense here on worldwide kfuo until next time pastor jonathan fisk here rock on